Welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Antonius Smith, and I'm excited to welcome Polly Barden on today's show. Polly is a Japanese literary translator. Her translations include Where the Wild Ladies Are by Aoko Matsuda, There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job by Kikuko Tsumara, and Spring Garden by Tomoka Shibasaki. Polly is the winner of the 2019 Fitzcarraldo Editions Essay Prize for 50 Sounds. She currently resides in Bristol. Thank you so much for joining us here in Book Talk. We are here with Polly Barden, and we will be discussing her book, 50 Sounds, A Memoir. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So, Polly, I want to start off by bringing this up first, the sentence. You prefaced the book with a certain memory surrounding a certain owl that you felt resentment for. (laughs) Do you remember that moment? And can you tell us a little bit about that moment and your feelings? Yeah, um, so the, the the preface to the book opens with an encounter with Duo from Duolingo when I was, yeah, I was actually studying Italian. And I do, I do remember that moment. You know, I, I think I really have a lot of love for Duolingo in, in certain ways. And, you know, I'm really astounded especially actually post pandemic by, you know, the number of people that I know who are learning Portuguese or they're learning Korean or whatever through it. And, you know, I think it does good things, but at the same time, you know, I was doing this five minutes of Italian a day on my lunch break. And I just, I guess I got this sense of how totally different that experience was, is, from my experience of learning Japanese, you know, when I I went out when I was 21, um, I didn't really know anything about Japanese culture, and I certainly didn't really speak the language. And I was um, working as an English teacher on a quite small island, um, quite remote part of Japan, and you know, I I kind of in that first year, essentially, <laughs> totally from scratch piece together some kind of Japanese, I don't know, basic knowledge. And that was just such a transformative, overwhelming, at times, you know, uh, <laughs> really frustrating, at times wonderful, but but generally just a very extremely immersive experience, you know? And so I, I guess I wanted to kind of begin the book by looking at sort of Duolingo and as a kind of symbol, I suppose, of what a lot of people think of when they think about language learning. And kind of, you know, I, I feel like 50 Sounds is in a way <laughs> in that it has, to the extent that it has a point, its point is to present, I suppose, an, an alternative view of language learning to one which is kind of classroom-based or textbook-based or app based or, you know, really has any kind of structure, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely understand that. And I would like to ask you this. Why did you choose the overarching format for your memoir of using onomatopoeias? So that was something that that came kind of naturally, I should say, as kind of a piece of context that I started writing this book when I had just come back from five years stint in Japan and I was living in Bristol. And still feeling very kind of between cultures, you know, not really 
you know, I, I, I've never been a near native Japanese speaker, but I came back to Bristol and, and found that I was really struggling to kind of express myself in English as well and to kind of fit back into, you know, English speaking culture. So I started um, kind of from that place, making some notes about Japanese and just kind of um, specific memories, I think, more than anything that I had relating to certain phrases. And after I'd been doing that for a while, I started to notice that onomatopoeia and onomatopoeic phrases were cropping up again and again. And I kind of started thinking, mm, okay, why, why is this? And, and as I sort of started to go into that and to kind of explore my feelings around those, that zone of Japanese specifically, I started to feel like actually this is very much of a piece with what I want to say in general in this book and and then I was thinking so the, the title 50 sounds is actually a, a direct transliteration of the Japanese word for their syllabary or kind of phonetic alphabet and I, when I kind of hit on that I was like actually this could be a really interesting way of structuring the book so I just kind of ran with it yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's absolutely cool. And of course, like, you know, each chapter is assigned a mimetic. Is that correct? Yes. And so with the mimetics, you sort of take the like uh, how, how the word would sound like the, the auditory, you know, or dictionary version of like the sound, but you kind of like apply to like a certain feeling of memory. Yeah, absolutely. So the yeah, the the title for each of the the sounds or each of the chapters is the yeah, the original Japanese word followed by a definition um which is essentially a, a wrong definition, you know, like a, 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 <laughs> yes. a personal <laughs> definition that's kind of T tied very much to my experience, usually with learning that word or encountering it for the first time, but sometimes it's more just generally kind of using that word as a, a lens or an entry point to, to kind of thinking about a specific area of Japanese or Japanese culture. Yeah. Starting with the chapter Giro Giro, you kind of yeah. mentioned that you kind of hate, <laughs> you hate when you're asked uh, why Japan. So <laughs> I'm not going to ask you, well, well, maybe actually I am going to ask you, Polly, <laughs> can you tell us <laughs> in your own words, uh, you know, what, what transpired or you were quote unquote giroted in your life uh, to make, make to feel inadequate? Like, can you give us more details about how the events led to you heading to Japan? Yes, absolutely. And you know, the, the, this chapter came in a way out of this realization that I had that I had been asked thousands of times, you know, why, why Japan? Why did you end up in Japan? And I gave, <laughs> almost gave a different answer every time, you know, like that, that there are so many, for me, there wasn't kind of one definitive reason, I suppose. Um, and and I suppose, you know, an, an important piece of context for that, I think, is that there's something about Japan and Japanese culture, which I think attracts a lot of really quite passionate sentiment or passionate attachment, um, you know, amongst people from the West. So, you know, if you are in Japan or even if you're not in Japan, people who love Japan and have come there usually 
really love Japan and have a very definite, you know, story of like, I have loved anime since I was five. And, and, and I always knew that I wanted to, and, you know, I am very much not one of those people. I studied philosophy at university and I definitely read a lot of, I, I read a lot of Japanese literature. Um, well, I, I guess in, in my childhood, but specifically at university. Um, and then the, the direct trigger, I, in a way, was <laughs> feeling quite desperate to get out of the UK. And my boyfriend at the time was quite a Japanophile, much more than I was. And he learned about the existence of this, this teaching program, which I know a lot of people from the States go on. And we both applied and <laughs> I ended up getting a place and he didn't. And that was, you know, it's one of those very strange things where I look back now and, you know, I really, at the point that I went to Japan, I really had no, not that much interest in it as a country. And now it's my entire life, you know, it's, it's my it's my whole career and it's, I, I love the language so much. Um, and he's doing something totally different you know and it's just one of those kind of interesting turning points in life I suppose. That is a very interesting turning point that's amazing and you mentioned of course like you know you got your degree in philosophy and there are many quotes in this book but you reference the philosophical teachings of uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah yeah I wanted to have him in the book um, because I feel like when I went out to Japan, I was fresh from a, a philosophy degree and, and particularly, I was particularly enamored by Wittgenstein's writing. And he writes a lot about language and the philosophy of, of language. Um, and so, so much of what I was experiencing as a 21 year old learning Japanese was really, you know, directly influenced by his thought. I, I feel like at that point, the, the kind of the furniture of my mind was so much tied up with him that if I was going to write about that journey, he needed to be in there. And so, yeah, he's, he's a kind of like <laughs> recurring cameo role in the, in the book, I suppose. I keep coming back to his, his ways of kind of thinking about things. Absolutely. And in the process, I guess, like right after you kind of like first mentioned Wittgenstein in, in your book and in Zara Zara, the chapter Zara Zara, yeah. you were taking a walk with a friend and you're talking about Wittgenstein's work investigation, but it didn't go as planned. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that moment? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the background to this story, in a way, is my real inability to talk about philosophy, you know, which has persisted, like it, it started right when I was in undergrad and everyone around me was just talking about philosophy all the time and I was really incapable of doing it. Um, and that, you know, that has continued um, right up until today, which, which is, is, is hard because kind of as I go into in this, this chapter, it, I'm narrating a particular event when I wasn't under pressure. I was walking with a friend. It's a friend I trust and whose kind of view of the world I think I share to some 
extent. And he asked me, you know, the direct question, which is which is rare because most people are not that keen on hearing about philosophy. Like, what does Wittgenstein say, and why is he important to you? You know, and then I kind of launched into this explanation and and totally lost him, and I think totally lost myself in the process. Um, and and yeah, so that chapter in in a way is a kind of a meditation on how it can be that something is so important to you and you know, sort of forms for me like I guess like such a crucial part of how I think and yet when I go to speak about it, it it's like it, it crumbles it's, it's it's almost too too big to talk about um I mean that's an excuse I'm just I'm just rubbish at talking about that stuff um, <laughs> But yeah, that's that's what that chapter is about. Okay, and I don't think you're not rubbish at talking about me. You speak two (laughs) languages for, you know, for heaven's sake. (laughs) I haven't noted that you used the mimetic Zara Zara to translate his Ryan Bodin. Yes, the the link with that chapter. So Zara Zara is the way that a particular line from the, the philosophical investigations, which is Wittgenstein's kind of most important work is translated um and it, so it's yeah in, in german it's Rauenboden, and in english it's rough ground let's go back to the rough ground he says and this, is, this is kind of it's used sometimes as a kind of motto for the or like you know that a key poll quote i suppose from the from the investigations um and and i was just talking about kind of roughness messiness and and that really is the key to Wittgenstein's later philosophy, sort of, you know, moving away from this kind of what can be very attractive, sort of very clean, uh, pure view of language towards something that's much about, much more about embracing the real, the realness of it. Um, And yeah, so, so discovering that, that phrase was translated in Japanese using a mimetic somehow kind of really sealed the deal for me that I had to write this book, you know? <laughs> um, that was, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's a kind of complex, complex train of thought, but um, yeah, that's the train of thought that the, the essay follows. No, I love that. I really do love that. And so, yeah, for sure. Uh, let, let's talk about when you arrive to the isolated island, shall we? Oh, sure. Uh, Sado, is it? Sado. Sado. Sado yeah. Island. Of course it's Sado. I should know this. Sado Island. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the memetic you assigned for the beginning of that chapter was Mushi Mushi? Yes. Yeah. And you related that particular one to insects because it was so intolerable. But I like the way that you, you phrased it, how it felt like insects. Mm, thank you. So that um, mushi mushi is is the Japanese word for um, that kind of very very humid heat that anyone who has visited Japan in the summer will be all too familiar with. And you know, I'm from the UK, and it's not humid here, and it's very rarely hot. And and that summer. That first summer when I arrived on this <laughs> isolated island after being, you know, two and a half hours on the ferry, it was just such a crazy shock to me. And I think everything was a shock 
but the yeah the weather kind of really really in a very kind of visceral moment to moment unforgettable way told me that I was somewhere just totally different and so I was kind of talking about my feelings about that and so actually the word mushi mushi is really unrelated to the other word mushi which is insect and yet because I didn't know anything about Japanese in my mind those link those words were you know totally linked um and everyone everywhere I went everyone around me was saying oh mushi mushi and so yeah they, they, they kind of all of these I, I suppose what that chapter and what a lot of actually 50 sounds is doing is is kind of exploring that place where you know you don't really know that much about a language and it's being spoken all around you and your poor suffering brain is doing its best to make sense of all this you know a little bit like like when you're a kid and kind of forming all of these connections and images and some of them are correct and then you know they they go on to be consolidated and some of them are just total nonsense and or or later get discarded but you know kind of remembering them sometimes as a you know more experienced language user can be quite funny Absolutely, for sure. I, I love that so much. It was really funny. Like I laughed so many times out loud, like reading so many different chapters. Yeah. And so next we have uh, Sapati. Yep. Yes. And you mentioned that one of the schools you worked at had a very toxic environment, but one of them you quite enjoyed. And mm. and there was a student who observed your friend Caroline's speech. But when you asked her, uh, how, you know, what did she feel about it? There may have been a misinterpretation of the word sapati initially. Uh, could yeah. you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. So I, I said, what did you think about it? And she just said, sapati. And I was like, oh, I've not heard that word before. So I, you know, went away and looked at my electronic dictionary and there were about, you know, four or five different words for this, uh, definitions for this word sapati. And and they were all the, the ones, the first ones were all things like clear and um, like understated and, you know, and I was thinking, wow, this is a very, you know, my friend's speech that she'd given was in English and she had a very thick Glaswegian accent. Um, and I was thinking like, wow, these are quite sophisticated reactions for, for you know, this school kid to have been having to this speech. Um, and then I asked a native speaker, you know, I explained the situation and I said, oh, she said, somebody, what, what do you think she meant? And there was just no hesitation, but somebody was the part of somebody, which means I had absolutely no idea what she was saying. <laughs> yes, that is hilarious. That is hilarious. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Next up, a freedom that you found being self-aware, um, but able to escape through another culture, Nobi Nobi? Yes, yes. Okay, could you explain that for us? Yeah, I would say I didn't have a very great time at university. You know, I really thought that college was going to be this the time that I would kind of come into myself. And I've been looking forward to it, you know, all throughout school. And actually, I... I found it really hard. I enjoyed the philosophy and, and stuff, but I felt very, very 
self-conscious and everyone around me was so kind of everything was a big in-joke and everything was wrapped in layers of irony and I just sort of really struggled I think to, to feel like I could be myself and which was part of the reason actually that I was so desperate to get out of the UK and you know that there's the real cliche thing right of of not feeling good in your own skin and trying to sort of go to I don't know go to India or go to some far-flung place and and find yourself and and obviously we all know that that doesn't really work for the most part a and b that it's you know highly problematic a lot of the time as someone from an affluent first world nation to go somewhere else in a kind of I suppose taking that country not as some place that has its own identity which you need to adapt to but just as a kind of free you know an empty space for you to feel liberated at the same time when I was on that island I did feel so much happier than I had felt for a long time in certain ways and so I suppose Nobi Nobi that chapter was a way of kind of trying to reconcile those two things and to you know discuss this feeling of of freedom I mean I now look back and I, I think that part of it was just how kind of geographically open it was you know it was a small island I was living right next to the sea I used to go for a walk by the sea every <laughs> every day every morning before work and there were just these kind of vast open spaces and then of course sort of on top of that in my first year being away from that quite limiting and constricting sense of social norms I think that was was troubling to me before so yeah that that was that chapter is kind of a reckoning with that I suppose I love that and I love obviously this is a, a theme a consistent theme throughout like your self-awareness and you reflecting internally about these things that a lot of people don't ever do or don't have to do. And so, it, you know, it forced you to, to traverse different spaces inside of yourself that you normally wouldn't. And, and I really loved reading through these things. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely, Polly, for sure. But something that, you know, a little less deep that I kind of like it was it was kind of funny ish, uh, but I was a bit sensitive to it, especially like being like an African-American person. And it was a Moja Moja, the electric head chapter. It was like the children were patting your head and, you know, almost kind of making you, um, you know, like this, you know, spectacle kind of thing. Like, and you had a friend with the initial of G who tried to make it sound good, but I don't, I don't know. It, it was a bit insensitive to me. Right, right. <laughs> There's a whole culture, you know, the, the the Japanese cultural approach to physical appearance, I think in general is is different. And from, for someone, I don't know, certainly from, the UK sometimes feels quite shocking there's no qualms in sort of saying oh you've put on weight or you have a big nose or you know this this kind of stuff which at first actually didn't bother me that much because I think I was just very much like in for a penny and for a pound you know the whole the whole thing was so um bewildering I guess that having kids touch my hair was kind of <laughs> the least of it um and, and it was only it was only towards the end that I started to feel find that more difficult 
um, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I totally get how you can be bewildered and just trying to take in the whole the whole yeah. experience and it just being a part of the experience. You had a couple of interests, well, from obviously more than a couple, but a couple I want to highlight, a couple of interesting interactions in the chapter of Yochi Yochi, uh-huh. where you reflected on how mimicry and paralinguistics are so important to our daily understanding. And the standout one for me was the mom of a toddler, and she sort of mimicked the baby's actions. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so this was when I was teaching, I had a, a Saturday morning job teaching young kids and I was standing around with the mums before the class or after the class and one of them had this tiny child who was kind of staggering around the place and the mum said, yoti yoti. and at the time I didn't really understand what that meant and then she did sort of her, put her arms out and kind of mimicked his way of walking and said repeated it yoti yoti but with the with the kind of the arm gestures and and the and that made it clear to me that that was a way of describing that kind of very you know toddler-esque way of walking and I use that in that chapter as a way of talking about when we in the west learn languages at school it's really commonly things like french or spanish and we learn them from a textbook and everything is so verbal right and and you kind of told this word means this um and and this chapter in particular was was a a reflection on how actually learning language kind of on on the field and certainly as a child it's so heavily just dependent on context is is the first one and the second thing is how often it involves our whole bodies you know and and it's all about gestures and kind of what you're doing as you say a particular word and really in order to learn to speak a language well to become truly fluent in the language you need to mimic you know and and that's when you when you spend time around young kids you see right that, that they're kind of mimicking things perfectly well before they understand really what they mean but that mimicking is part of the process of coming to understand um i mean all of this is a hundred percent Wittgenstein. So this really was just me kind of, you know, using my own experience to sort of channel him in a way. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And one last question for you, Polly. You're a very busy person. Um, any new projects that you're working on? Of course, you translate a lot of things, uh, but any, any new things we could possibly anticipate coming up for you? I am working on a translation for New Directions at the moment. It's a book called Mild Vertigo by Mie Kokanai, um, and it's very exciting. It's quite possibly the hardest thing that I've ever translated. So it, it's really interesting for me because I think I was just just starting to reach a position where I was like, okay, I've translated quite a few books now. I'm, you know, not not I know how to do this, but you know, I'm okay. I'm not as as terrified as I used to be. And I've really, with this project, gone back to this position of translation is so hard. <laughs> um, can I do it? But I also think that that's probably a good thing. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good to be challenged. But this, is, uh, this book is certainly a wild, 
ride. So yeah, look, look out for that. Well, we will absolutely be looking out for Polly. And once again, I want to thank you so much for joining us here to talk about your book, 50 Sounds, A Memoir of Language, Learning and Longing by Polly Barton. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Polly Barden is the author of 50 Sounds, a memoir of language, learning, and longing, which is published by Live Right. I'm Antonius Smith, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.